Klaivu sponsors the Replatform podcast. Check out Klaivu Smart Search in Action on replatform.fm to help you find the podcast you're looking for. In other news, we've written a guide with input from James and Paul, replatforming tips for in-house e-commerce teams. Download free at klaivu.com slash replatform. Welcome to today's Replatform podcast. It's myself, James Gerdon, and joined as always by my co-host, Paul Rogers. How are you doing, sir? I'm good, thanks. Bit of a flurry getting to uh, somewhere I could record this, but yeah, good overall. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, I'm good, thanks. I haven't had a flurry. I'm, I'm at home today, so it's been a little bit easier for me. Uh, it's all good. So we've got we've got a very exciting and very topical um, uh, subject matter today. Um, so we are looking at the fascinating world of e-commerce in China. I mean, there's so much being written about and there are lots of Western countries that have really tried to, to expand into China because of the market potential. I think something over $1.7 trillion worth of markets grown rapidly in recent years. Like in 2019, some alone it led 17%. But it's not just the growth, it's just how much is happening there, more diversity and, and the things that are happening there that, that we're behind the curve on in the Western, in Europe um, uh, uh, specifically. Things like, like live shopping, um, now a lot of people talking about live commerce. So there's lots of really cool things that are happening that the that countries like UK and Europe can really learn for for the future. So who better to give us an expert view than the largest independent agency in China that serves as a global resource for brands who are trying to, to launch and, and expand there. So welcome to the podcast, Ying Chun from Highlink. Hello, everyone. I'm Ying. Thank you for having me here today. Uh, we're really excited, Ying. Thanks very much for joining us. So before we start uh, bombarding you with all our annoying questions, what would be really great is if you could give our listeners a bit of a flavour for who you are, what you do, and, and, and you know who is Highlink? Sure. So uh, my name is Ying. Uh, I'm actually the um, Digital and Business Director at Highlink. So my background is, is um, a little bit more diverse in the sense that I'm originally from Singapore, um, but I moved to um, China um, in about 2009. Um, and then I spent about eight years in Shanghai doing from like design, marketing, and then moving to agency before I left Shanghai. I was the um, head of digital for um agency over there. And then I moved to London about four and a half years ago. So now I work at Highlink. So Highlink, we are a native um, Chinese digital agency. So you would know of a lot of um, Western agencies, you know, like the big um, foyer groups that's moving from the east, uh, from the west to the east. Whereas um, Highlink, we are the first Chinese um, agency that's moving from the east to the west. Um, we've been set up here for about coming to four years. Um, and I'm one of the first few um, hires of the company. And right now, what we do is what you've mentioned earlier, we help brands in Europe understand the Chinese market help them to navigate through the complexity of the landscape and then help them be a success in the Chinese market and attract Chinese consumers. Great. Um, so I'll ask the first question. Yes. So can you give us a bit of an overview on some of the key channels um, for China? Um, so selling in China, so kind of direct and all of the other kind of channels. So um, I would say that many people would have heard of um, the BATS, B-A-T-S, um, which is short for Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and Sina. Now, in the recent years, we would have also have heard of ByteDance, um, who owns Douyin, or more commonly known as TikTok here in the West. So these are just some of the key players in the market that brands should be aware of. Now, and if a brand is looking to, to, to sell products to Chinese market, um, there are definitely some core channels they, they should consider. So, you know, Alibaba will own Timo, and I'm sure a lot of um, the listeners would be familiar with. There's also JD.com, um, which, and these two platforms are more commonly known as kind of the marketplaces in China. 
So equivalent to your Amazon, but you know, with much more possessed in that sense. Um, and then we have what I like to call the almost multitask channels, such as the Little Red Book, also known as Red and WeChat, um, both of which allow for social interaction um, while coupling with e-commerce. And then of course, last but not least, but Douyin, the short video live streaming platform, which is also gaining a lot of momentum in the e-commerce space. So as you can tell that there are a lot of platforms that um, businesses should be aware of, but earlier, those few that I mentioned would be the core channels that people should pay attention to. Great. And I guess with with those kind of different channels and a lot of our clients, particularly, you know, Timor is a really big channel. Um, what, and also WeChat, so what proportion of sales for your kind of average client, I know you work with a lot of premium brands, um, mm-hmm. is coming directly from their e-com site. So people actually going onto their kind of branded site and then checking out through that site. Yeah, so for most of the clients we, we help here at Highlink, I mean, their goal is to sell directly to Chinese consumers. There, there are a few clients uh, who we work with who are relying on footfall, um, but the majority of clients would be selling directly from an e-commerce site. So it could be their official Tmall store, um, their WeChat mini program, or even their own um, .com with Chinese payment methods. So in fact, I mean, earlier we talked about some numbers. So E-commerce in China accounts for more than 50% of worldwide retail sales on the internet, right? And in 2020, the, the retail e-commerce sales value in China, I think it amounted to about 2.3 trillion US dollars. So up from 1.8 trillion the previous year. So yes, a lot of our clients are actually um, just selling directly from e-commerce sites. And I guess, um, so with that, so you mentioned Tmall and um, mini programs for WeChat then. Mm-hmm. So in, in in terms of the actual website, so through the browser, mm-hmm. um, yeah, what proportion of people are actually kind of buying through that channel versus like a Tmall or the WeChat? Mm, I would say that the mass majority would still be on Tmall or WeChat um, simply because a lot of the clients that we do work with, um, they may have um, challenges having their own .com um, store to be hosted in, in China and to facilitate that e-commerce um, process, whether it's about the operation, fulfillment. So most of them will start off with, um, you know, relying on the um, Chinese eco, um, the sorry, the tech giants there. So basically setting up your WeChat uh, mini programs, setting up your Red store and your Tmall store, they would often start off with that. And then after they have gained some traction in the market, then they will start off with their .com. And um, and just quickly, uh, while we're talking about the .com, so I was having a conversation with a client the other day and it was specific to Macau, but I'll ask this question in the context of kind of uh, the whole region. Um, How important for the .com is... Alipay and WeChat Pay as payment options. Like, what proportion uh, of people are using credit card versus using those payment methods? <laughs> I would say that very little percentage of, of, of people would be using their, their credit card on the dot com in China. Um, most of them will be relying on Alipay and, and WeChat Pay. Um, there is, of course, Union Pay um, that you know it's kind of like the Visa Mastercard equivalent. But um, almost every Chinese consumer would have an Alipay or a WeChat K, uh, Pay account. So yeah, I would say almost like 97 percent of them would be paying directly like that. Yeah, amazing. And continuing the technology theme, quite a lot of people will be aware of the firewall um, yeah. and the impact this can have. So I guess. How should people, I guess a couple of questions actually. Number one is, could you clarify for people who might not understand this what the firewall is? And then secondly, how should people approach it? How can people deliver a local site and what do they need to think about avoiding to stop being being blocked, basically? 
Yes, um, the Great Firewall. So yes, uh, um, it's essentially think of China. It's like how they there's a lot of um, platforms that that are banned in China, right? So you would know that you can't access YouTube, you can't access Facebook, Instagram. China has its own ecosystem of of um, platforms. Uh, earlier we mentioned about Timor, WeChat. All of this are, um, I would say that it's it's regulated. Um, so the Chinese authorities would would actually have to kind of verify each of this platform presence in that sense. So, well, just you can tell that the digital landscape in China is pretty different from what we have here. So I think first and foremost, um, it would be worthwhile for any brand to evaluate, um, first of all, how much traffic are they already getting from, from China from their current.com website? Now, if they are already generating a healthy inbound traffic on a regular basis, then yes, it would be worthwhile to explore your own local Chinese website. Um, and then, now if we're talking purely about website in this instance, um, there's a few questions we need to address first. So first of all would be, you know, does your company have a Chinese business entity? Now, why is this important? Um, because in order to kind of get a Chinese domain name, one with a .cn, you actually need to have a Chinese legal entity. There's, of course, um, the next step of applying for an ICP license, uh, which is short for Internet Content Provider. This is issued by the Chinese Ministry of Industry and Information Technology, so which allows your Chinese-based website to operate in the country. All right. So there is, of course, you could have a, a .net, .cn and, and uh, you know, some other domain names that, that is not requirement for an I, that doesn't require an ICP, but that's a totally different um, you know, conversation altogether. Now, what if I do not have a Chinese business entity? Then, of course, we can look at options such as having a CDN. Um, but ultimately, I mean, the user experience will only be optimal if the low speed of the website is catered for the Chinese audiences. So um, very often we, we advise clients that, you know, in, in the short term, you could have just a, a microsite or a landing page um, if you don't have an ICP license or don't have a Chinese business entity. Um, but then in the long term, if you really want to um, concentrate and, and, and sell in the Chinese market, um, it will make sense to kind of get your Chinese business entity. And, and this is because of many other things down the road, whether you could sell direct to China, um, to Chinese consumers, setting up your red store. So there's a lot of components that come in play. Excellent, thanks. That's that's really nice and clear. And in terms of if you're if you're setting up your own website versus you you know you're you're going through um, other channels, are there any specific third parties that you shouldn't be putting on your own website that could create problems from a firewall point of view, or is it more about you just it's things like YouTube aren't accessible? Yes, I, I would say that um, there's a few few components, right? So first of all, you already mentioned the the the, the social media platforms that are banned in China. So the YouTube, um, the the Facebook, um, Instagram, etc. So if you put the links to those on on your site, then clearly it can't be accessed. And and in terms of user experience, that that wouldn't wouldn't be optimal at all. So most of the time, we would recommend clients to make sure they have their WeChat icon, the Weibo links, um, little red book links, et cetera. So everything has to be catered to the Chinese market. Then the other side is, of course, in terms of, um, say, for example, the, the content. Um, this is, of course, very, very important. I think when it comes to Chinese language, um, China uses simplified Chinese, um, whereas um, other regions um, in the um, greater China, uh, for example, Taiwan and, uh, and Hong Kong, they would be using like um, more traditional Chinese. So knowing the, the, the nuances of the language differences, and even when you were to put in like, say, for example, you ship internationally, um, you know, if you have to put Hong Kong, you know, bracket, you know, greater China, et cetera. So making sure that how we, we categorize um, 
the, the regions that we deliver to. And then when it comes to content as well, um, you know, making sure that the content does cater to what the Chinese audiences are familiar with. Um, so th there are a lot of nuances like this, but the first thing, of course, you talk about the international sites. Um, those are the things that wouldn't um, work well in the Chinese market. So making sure the social icons and social platforms are not linked directly. So some brands might say, for example, link a video from their YouTube. That wouldn't work at all. So, yeah. Um, and just touching on WeChat again, so can you give us a bit of an overview on how brands typically use WeChat from a commerce perspective and also how a mini program works? That's been something that a lot of our clients have ended up uh, kind of going with after they've moved into China. Um, mm -hmm. And then also kind of, I guess, in terms of that mini program, like what brands are doing to kind of push engagement. So I know a lot of people use games, things like that. Um, but yeah, maybe just give us like a bit of an overview on WeChat as a channel. Sure. So um, WeChat is often known as kind of like the super app, I would say, and rightfully so, actually. Think of it as an app within an app. So it's like multiple apps in one app. So WeChat it was developed initially as a messaging app. So, so users would be texting one another, leaving voice messages, sharing pictures similar to, to WhatsApp. However, um, it has rapidly evolved and now you can have a mini program, which um, you mentioned earlier. So this allows brands to better service um, their, their customers. Now, that has often been kind of like the, the mantra of WeChat, I would say. They, they always think of how can we better service our users? So hence, when they, they develop the, the mini program, it, it almost has a multi functional app. So a brand can use a mini program in multiple ways. Um, so for example, um, they can set up a mini program purely for e-commerce um, and then another one purely for gamification, so for entertainment purpose. And then the brand can link each mini program together. So a user might play a game and, and after completion of the game, get a voucher and click on the voucher and it goes to the mini program for the e-commerce. So in, in that case, you know, each mini program being linked to one another and the user never really leaves the WeChat ecosystem. That, that's how brilliant that is, right? So I would say that, you know, to start off, um, most brands will have an official WeChat account first. So that is like your brand page um, where you can feed information to users. Uh, and at the back end, you can have CRM integrated, um, you know, so that you could kind of um, tag users on their interests and, and, and serve them um, information that, that would be of value for them. Um, but then WeChat also regulates the amount of content that goes out to the user on a regular basis because they don't want you to be spamming them all the time. So after which most brands would then plan for a mini program. So for a start, perhaps a more basic e-commerce site, which can be linked from the official WeChat account. Um, and also there's paid ads within the ecosystem, of course, um, that will help in driving new followers and traffic to the WeChat mini program. Now, one thing I would also like to mention um, that a lot of brands are, are, are starting to be aware about is um, WeChat Work uh, or WeChat Enterprise is previously known as, and now they have a new name of WeCom as well. So this is another super feature, I would say. Um, this, this allows for salespeople to communicate with customers on a more intimate basis while still being under the umbrella of the brand account. So rather than you know a one-on-one -on -one person, like a salesperson reaching out to a customer, they will re be reaching out representing the brand. But then from the back end of this, this system, the brand can actually see which salespeople is talking to which customer, what sales has been um, you know, fulfilled, and then the salesperson get a commission. So I, I don't want to overwhelm with all this information. There's a lot to explore within the WeChat ecosystem. And, and honestly, I could talk about it all day. Yeah. Okay, great. And, um, and would you mind doing the same for Tmall now? 
Mm. So Tmall is, I mean, it's it's a it's an exciting space to be on. I mean, if we would we would just to talk about numbers, right? I mean, um, I think as of 2020, there are over about 25,000 brands on Tmall Global. And on Singles Day event last year, which is kind of like a Black Friday, um, typically that, that was a one-day event. Um, but last year, they actually ran for nearly two weeks. So from November 1st through November 11th, so Singles Day, 1111. Um, the gross merchandise volume during that period, um, well, according to Alibaba, was about $74.1 billion um, US dollars. And this compares with $38 billion in a 24-hour period on November 11 in 2019. Now, in comparison, Amazon's um, 2020 Prime Day generated about $10.4 billion in gross merchandise sales. So yes, Tmall is big, and brands are eager to be on it. So when we talk about Tmall, there's, there's two components. There's Tmall and there's Tmall Global. So once again, it boils down to whether the brand has a Chinese business entity and is able to sell directly in China, or will it be selling um, via cross-borders? So if it's cross-borders, then of course, it will be Tmall Global. So many of our clients are keen to be on Tmall, um, but honestly, some of them may not be completely ready. And why do I say that? Now, to set up Tmall, there is quite a substantial initial investment um, required. Um, this is, of course, to set up the storefront, um, but also to have a deposit set aside for the platform because Tmall tends to give a lot of um, reward bets to the user. So, for example, I, I shop very active on, on Tmall, even though I'm now living in London. But if I log in every day, I can collect coins that give me a bit of a discount in my next purchase. Um, and and Tmall does want to incentivize users to be active on the platform. So when we talk about a brand being on Tmall, apart from the cost of setting it up, there's also the cost for a TP, um, short for a Tmall partner. So they, they, they will help with the day-to-day -day operation and sales uh, and customer service. Um, so therefore, before a brand launches immediately to be on Timor or Timor Global, I would have often advise it would be good to do some due diligence. Um, understand how much traffic is already present for the brand on Timor. How big is the potential of the category? Um, it is also important to be mindful that users are not just going to be on Timor to buy your product if they have no clue who you are in the first place, right? Therefore, it's crucial to factor in the marketing spend. So both in-station, which is within Timor, and outstation, that is outside of Timor, when you're speaking to Chinese consumers. So yeah, so so in, in, in short, I would say Timor is almost like the holy grail for, for any brand to be beyond when it comes to China, but they need to make sure they, they have done their research prior to, to investing on the platform um, in, the in the first instance. I'd love to talk to you a bit now about live commerce side because um, I've read some amazing uh, reports about what's happening. Here. Live shopping is like huge and influencers driving millions of sales. Like Taobao alone, their 2020 annual single day, mm. they need something about live streams accounted for about six billion of the sales, which is twice the year before, which is massive. <laughs> so, can you give us some insights? Like how how are e-commerce businesses using live shopping, and what do they need to to think about to make it work? Yes. So I think this live shopping thing, uh, live streaming, as we, we call it in, in China, this is something that's taken off in the last few years. And of course, um, Douyin, the TikTok um, equivalent, has, has contributed a lot of it. But Tmall itself has done a lot of their own internal um, live streaming as well. Now, live streaming is, you know, in the West, we had QVC. Right, so so it's almost similar, but the the live streamers are often um, key opinion leaders, the KOLs, and they are very familiar with um, what their users um, would like to 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 buy. So, for example, if I were to work with a brand um, and then they want to do live streaming, very often the live streamers, um, the KOLs, would then 
evaluate the product, find out the price point, whether it's something that their consumers would be interested in. And then they would then set up a section to do, uh, and, and kind of kind of have a pre-teaser section where they will start posting a lot about the product or about what they will be featuring first. And then on that day of the live streaming itself, they will talk about the product very thoroughly. Um, one good KOL, uh, I'm sure a lot of um, brands who are familiar with the Chinese market would, would have heard of called Austin Lee. He's, he's essentially like the lipstick king. So he's he, he, a he, <laughs> and, and he does, he sells lipsticks and that's how he became famous. He would try on the lipsticks and then he would give critics and, and he would even evaluate whether um, those, those um, uh, products would be suitable for certain skin types. So during that live streaming event, everyone would immediately click add to cart and, and convert and, and, and you could sell millions during that one hour session, for example. However, do bear in mind that to work with these um, celebrities and, and KOLs for live streaming, you do need to pay them a commission fee. So um, it could range anything from, from as low as like 15, 20% to as high as 30, 40% even. Um, so there is, you have to factor in um, the, the commission that you're going to pay to them. Then some of them would also charge a fixed fee on top of that commission to post um, preceding posts. Uh, earlier I mentioned about the teaser posts. So things like this would all have to be factored in. Amazing. Yeah, I find it absolutely fascinating how the influencer scene has grown so much. And there's a lot happening in China. Obviously, we're, we're starting to catch up a bit in the in Western markets now around where live shopping fits in and beauty especially. But that's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and you know, obviously, you work in business development for, for a big uh, agency. The clients you work with, do they typically hire teams and build in uh, their own teams to push growth? Or do they do it all through partners? I mean, how does it how does it work? What's a typical like path to market? Yes, actually, it's 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 almost an equal split, I would say, um, because the clients that I work with here, I mean, no two clients we work with are ever the same, um, because some clients have no immediate needs to hire a dedicated China team, um, because maybe they don't have a Chinese business entity yet, so they will look for partners like us at Highlink to help manage the the China marketing side of things. So very often, we are often seen as the the China wing within the brand. Um, and But in some instances, there might be a small local team in China. Um, that, and the team could be really small. It could be just a sales uh, and a business development person on the ground. So they would still be relying on agency partners like ourselves. Um, so we also have worked with like much bigger um, uh, bigger groups, for example, and they would have a big established um, team in, in, in China. And then our local team will work with them, but mainly it's more to support like the media buy. Um, side of things. So one thing I want to, to add is um, we do want to remind brands out there that if you do have a partner or distributor in China, so um, they, they might often say, we can do your marketing for you in China because we are your distributor, etc. Now, make sure you register the platforms under your own business entity. So even if it's a UK um, or a Europe um, entity, um, because Brands can open WeChat or Weibo account with their foreign entities. A, a bit, a, a little bit more hassle, but it is possible. Now, we've, why I say this is because we've seen instances of brand opening official channels, official accounts using their partner's business entity. And if the relationship falls through, um, they ended up having trouble gaining ownership of these accounts uh, as they are registered under their well, ex-partner's business entity. Um, so the platform, like the Tencent and the Alibaba, et cetera, they would consider that the partner actually own this, this channel. 
So you could risk losing like thousands of followers or millions of followers that you have built up over the years. So talk about kind of like an uncomfortable divorce in that sense. But yeah, always set up um, your own Chinese um, verified platform with, with your own business entities. Um, so I have, I have a question. How do expectations differ around shipping, returns, all of that kind of stuff in the Chinese market? Um, I would say that it's definitely very high expectations, um, simply because I think Chinese consumers are are kind of quite, in, in terms of like the, the expectation that, let me give you an example, all right? When I was living in China, uh, I needed a new mobile phone. I went on JD.com, um, purchased a phone at around 9.30 a.m. I received the product by lunchtime, okay? So this is how speedy the logistics um, can be in China. So when you talk about like return shipping, um, operational um, consideration, for example, um, on Tmall, um, there is often a live chat function with the customer service. Um, you can ask about sizing, returns, etc. So um, users are very accustomed to just chatting with someone real time. Um, and then they, they get the feedback immediately. And, and the customer service often will will even incentivize them with, with more vouchers to, to kind of push them over the edge to, to buy. So if a brand does not have a Tmall store, customers may go to social media on, on the Weibo and WeChat to leave a comment. In some cases, a complaint as well. So therefore, it's important for a brand to be aware of the need to have like regular communication and, and with the customers and also respond in a timely um, manner. Um, the other thing to also consider is the custom clearance and the regulations and limitations around it. Now, very often, if a brand is working already with a TP, a, a team or partner, they will recommend on how that can be facilitated, you know, cross, uh, you know, just clear custom clearance. But if a brand is shipping direct to the customer from, from UK, from Europe in general, they need to factor in the taxes and whether there are other hidden charges which the customer may not be aware of when they first place the order. Because the last thing you want is, you know, you ship, ship it over to the customer and it gets stuck at customs and then... They go on a rampage on on Weibo, um, which is the Twitter equivalent, and and then you have to do quite a fair bit of of um, like crisis management of uh, almost to try to mitigate that. Yeah. And I guess at the moment it feels like there is a huge amount of or there are a huge amount of brands uh, kind of trying to enter China um, in terms of like the luxury brands, then kind of maybe slightly less premium brands. Then now you've got all the kind of D to C brands trying to grow into China. Do you, how do you see the market changing now that it's becoming so not saturated, but there's a lot of kind of European brands going into China now. Um, yeah. Do, do you kind of think that um, it is getting saturated? Yeah. Do you think there'll be kind of any changes around um, the kind of the barriers to entry? How do you think mm. things will change? Yes, I think that there are definitely many, many brands who are interested in the Chinese market. Um, and, and I honestly feel that um, for, for any brand that that wants to enter the Chinese market, you, we, we really need to be become a lot more nimble, a lot more flexible to adapt to the changes. Um, and because why I say this is that the, the rate, the speed of change is, is very rapid over there. Um, if you think about it, a lot of these platforms did, didn't exist um, in, in the past. Like, for example, um, in the last decade, right? So if we, we look at, say, Weibo, the Twitter equivalent, it didn't exist until 
2009, WeChat didn't exist till 2011, Douyin didn't exist till 2016, but all of this platform, which, which I've mentioned, have undergone major revamp and upgrades since then. So Douyin started out as a short video platform, right? But they have now their own e-commerce, um, and this was in June 2020, I believe. And there's other platform like um, Kuaishou, which is another short video platform. They've also rolled out their own e-commerce propositions. Uh, and WeChat earlier, you know, we talk about how the changes that they've gone through with the mini programs and 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 WeCom, et cetera. So I don't foresee that the market will be harder to enter, but the entry barrier might get higher. So for example, the requirement to have a local business entity to kind of ease facilitation for payment for a red store. Um, there might be more stricter requirements of what the brand needs to provide to show their trademark and copyright in the market. So all of this, the brand needs to be prepared that there will be the initial hurdles they need to get through. Um, and also you talk about, you know, whether there's any changes. Now, earlier James asked about the live streaming. Um, I would say that in the last few years, um, we can see that, Live streaming is, is definitely picking up a lot. But one minor change I would say is that right now, it's not just the key opinion leaders who, who, who could be conducting live streaming. So almost any individual could be a live streamer and be selling products. So there, there are actually farmers now on Domin. They're selling produce from, from honey to sweet potato. So it's no longer the celebrities who are drawing in the crowd. Your average Joe could, be, could also become a KOL. Um, the other thing is, so when it comes to um, being aware of what's going on in the market and some of the changes, I would say that um, also explore um, a lot more on IP collaboration. I mean, a lot of brands here are actually having partnerships, right? But the, the whole IP collaboration is something that that is really very popular in China right now. I mean, brands need to be more open-minded about collaborations and leveraging the popularity of another brand or IP to elevate their presence in the Chinese market. Uh, if we look at the, the, the number of brands that are really working with, say, for example, the British Museum and the Palace Museum, the, the culture um, you know, category, it is no longer limited to just art and culture related products. You know, they will work with the British Museum to come up with like beauty and fashion product as well, and even a mobile phone. So I would almost say that, that there are some changes and they happen really quickly. So brands, if you're interested to enter the Chinese market, need to really be able to keep up with, with the pace of change. Great. And um, another trend that we've seen is a lot of people, I guess a lot of the brands we work for started opening physical stores in Macau, which mm -hmm. seems to be like a rapidly growing uh, market. So firstly, have you seen the same trend? And then also, so based on my research so far, a lot of the kind of fundamental challenges of having an e-com store in China aren't applicable to Macau. So for example, you could use a platform like Shopify. You don't mm. necessarily have to worry about the firewall. Um, what are some of the other kind of barriers or major considerations for kind of selling online in that market? Mm. So Macau in the zone, it's, it's in the past few years, it's gained a lot of traffic, but mainly from tourism from China. So um, Chinese tourists are, are flocking to Macau for affordable shopping, food, entertainment, and, and the brands there are doing a lot of promotion to cater to the inbound travelers. So Macau and Hainan are, are, are both becoming key destinations for Chinese tourists. So I'll talk a little bit more about Hainan and, and before I go back to, to the e-commerce offerings, that, uh, questions that you were asking. Now for Hainan, um, 
the city extended like duty-free quarters to attract travelers during the pandemic, become a key destination for mainland Chinese luxury shoppers um, who are currently unable to travel overseas. So when it comes to Macau, there is definitely the attraction due to tax consideration as well. I mean, I personally know a few um, colleagues who travel to Macau just to shop for luxury product. Now, when we talk about the e-commerce side, yes, Macau itself, um, because they are they 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 kind of operate separately from from the the um, mainland China um, digital ecosystem in that sense. So you can access like you know the Facebook, uh, YouTube, etc. And some brands will shop uh, set up their own Shopify um, you know format of store. Um, however, to sell direct to Chinese consumer, if I'm in China right now. I won't be able to access or, or, or do my fulfillment because that Shopify um, section won't won't actually work for the Chinese market. So so therefore, it's it's still mainly catering for those that is more for um, tourism offline, but for online, there there will still be um, restrictions. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Thanks, Ching. Um- I guess we've talked about a lot and we've covered a lot of interesting insights. If you could give people like your one or two killer tips for if you're a brand looking to get into China in the e-commerce market, what what are the key takeaways people should be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, um, if, if I only had to give one tip, that's, that's going to be very tough because I often overshare about what a brand should consider when looking yeah. into China. <laughs> but one advice I would probably um, give is, I mean, consider the relationship you like to have with the Chinese audience uh, and establish one for the long haul. Um, why I say this is because very often, and I've heard this line too many times, you know, I, I, I get a lot of people telling me, oh, there's 1.4 billion people in China. I just need 1% to buy my product. Um, my question would be, why, why do you feel they would want to buy your product? What is it about your product that they would love? I mean, of course, we have to factor the culture difference, the language nuances, and in any form of marketing, whether you're marketing to the East or to the West, it is about the story you tell, right? So how can you convey your brand story? One that will resonate with the Chinese audiences uh, and build that relationship, and not just a kind of a quick fling, you know, but one that can sustain the brand's growth in years to come. Because earlier I talked about the pace of change in China, um, but also how it is a very complex but very busy ecosystem. Um, the whole China e-commerce space is for, for any brand to be, be on. So consumers are becoming more and more discerning. They expect the brand to keep up with the changes. So they expect brands to connect with them, to listen to them, understand their needs, rather than saying, you know, I've got a great product, which I've made. Show them why your product fits into their lives, how you support the consumer's interests and values on a day-to-day basis. Now, this is why we now see a lot of domestic brands in China, you know, um, that that's, you know, Chinese brand made in China, such as like lingerie brand Neiwai, beauty brand Perfect Diary. They are capturing the hearts of Chinese consumers because they show that they understand the consumers and come up with product to cater to their daily needs. Many global brands have, as well have also come up with their made for China market products, especially during key festive um, seasons like Chinese New Year. But this is not just merely about plucking the zodiac animal and pl- you know, planting it on a product. It's about understanding what the Chinese consumers are looking for and how the product will fit them. So, I mean, to put it crudely, it's almost like dating, isn't it? You know, you need to keep an open mind. It never assume that the Chinese consumer have the same behavior as your current audiences in the West. You know, keep an open mind, listen to their needs and wants. So, for example, they would prefer Chinese payment methods. They would provide, prefer uh, localized platforms. And convey your story to them in a way they feel that they feel an affinity with. 
you know, show them respect. And in turn, they would be your best ambassadors in the market because a lot of the products that sell in China, it's it's not just the brand pushing the sales across, it's also because of the word of mouth and, and Chinese consumers advocating for the brand. And that, that's what makes the product sell. Excellent. That's, that's a really nice way of framing it, but bringing it back to the, the, the customer experience piece and also the cultural understanding as well, which is important yes. when, you're, when you're working globally. Yes. Um, and related to that, what resources and reports do you recommend? Like, what, What's good authoritative data source? I know you'll have some of your own, but where should people look if they want to read up in more detail about the, the Chinese e-commerce market? Yeah, I think there are a few, um, like, Websites that, for example, um, Gene Daily, um, that, that's one of those that I follow regularly because they do cover a lot of case studies from brands. Um, there's a lot of WeChat official accounts. So, so WeChat accounts, there's like, um, they would actually be posting on case studies as well. Some of them might be in Chinese, but then ultimately, of course, Highlink, we have our own blogs uh, and we share a lot of case studies as well. And yeah, so these are the few and, and everyone is welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn if they're interested to find out a bit more about uh, marketing to Chinese. Amazing. Um, yeah, so you heard Ying, if you want to reach out, do so via um, LinkedIn. Um, also on the post on our website, there'll be a link out to, to Ying's uh, LinkedIn profile to HighLink so you can follow up the conversation. Ying, thanks very much for joining us. I've really enjoyed it. I mean, I've learned tons as well because China e-commerce is not one of my core expertises. So that's been very, very interesting on a purely selfish level as well. <laughs> Great. Um, and I, I'm sure our listeners have got a load of value out of that. Um, actually, I have interest. How was your experience of the podcast today? Um, it's 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 great. It's actually you know I I I've often wondered whether I have more of a radio voice or you know so so this is something that that would be good once I you know listen to myself I'll be like ah oh, you know why I've always got a feedback that I talk too fast so I'm hoping that I haven't spoken too fast throughout all of this but yeah you know good experience all in all <laughs> wonderful no not at all uh, it's been it's been really good we've enjoyed listening to your voice so thank you very much thank you. Um, and thanks as always for everyone for listening uh, to the podcast. Look, do subscribe if you haven't already. If you like the episodes, we'd also really appreciate a rating on Apple or Spotify. That'd be very useful. Thank you. And join us again next week.